Well, good morning, Bay Hills. Grab the study guide that's in your program. If you have your Bible, good morning to you. Turn to uh, Nehemiah on your phones. If you're using one of the church Bibles, we're on page 476. As you guys are uh, turning there in your Bibles, um, they got this, um, read this story about an issue they're having in New York City. New York City loves their pets. They have, um, let me look at uh, 8 million cats, 11 million dogs. So they love to have pets in New York City, as most of us do. The problem that they're having is when one of their pets dies, they don't know what to do with it. They, don't, they can't go in the backyard or some empty field and bury the, the, their pet, and so they, they don't know what to do. It's a city of concrete and steel. So the city of New York has come up with a service whereby for a fee of $150, they will come, take your dead animal and, and pet, and dispose of it in a humane way, right? Because it's our pet. Well, people have picked up on this and kind of entrepreneurs, and they've tried to make a couple bucks on their own. So for example, there's this, there was this lady in New York City who uh, saw what was going on and decided to start advertising on Craigslist and, su- and such that she would do the same thing that the city of New York does, but for half the cost, for $75, right? So people are like, well, I mean, why would I pay 150 if I can get it done for 75 So she, uh, So what she would do, though, is before going to the condo or wherever she's picking up the dead pet, whether it's in her neighborhood or the neighborhood she was going, she would go to a Goodwill store or a Salvation Army store or kind of a used store. She'd buy a used, cheap suitcase for a couple bucks, right? She'd go to the condo, she'd pick up the dead dog, dead cat, put it in the suitcase, and then she would go down to the subway station. And she'd take the suitcase and she'd let it down and she'd pretend to be distracted. And within minutes, someone would grab it, steal it, and run away. Right. So now, as I, by the way, the cops found out what was happening. They didn't know what to charge her with. When you think about it, she's not forcing anybody to steal it. Right. She was incredibly clever. Uh, but I'm thinking when I read that story, I have two things. One is she's saving the poor grieving family, you know, over their pet 75 bucks. So that's not a bad deal. And second of all, if you think about it, she's probably motivating some thieves to not steal anymore. Can you imagine when they got home and opened that suitcase? Right. Um, wouldn't it be great if when you and I had a problem, we could be that creative, come up with solutions? Today, we're starting a brand new series in the book of Nehemiah. It's going to take us for a couple months here. And it's a story about a huge problem that the Jewish people have in Jerusalem. The, their problem is that the wall surrounding the city is broken. Now, that, that doesn't sound like a very exciting story. I mean, really, we're going to spend a couple months on that. And, until you remember and realize that the principles that are shared in the book of Nehemiah on how to fix a wall are the exact same principles that God gives to us to fix whatever problems we have in our life. Now, I'm guessing no one showed up this morning with a perfect life, no problems. We all walked in this door and and, and we have family problems, marriage problems, kid problems, financial problems, body problems, career problems, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of spiritual problems. We all have some sort of issue. Some sort of, some of us have pro- small problems or more annoyances. And some of us walked in here with huge problems. I mean, devastating issues we don't know how to fix. I promise you, not only this morning, but as we go through this book, you're going to learn some principles that God's giving you to say, let me, let me help you out. Let me help you work through some of these issues to work through some of these problems. So we're starting this morning. You see the title is just fixing what's broken. So whatever it is broken in your life or, or not working well, 
Get it in your mind, because that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 starts off, and here's what we read. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, that will become important later. That's the month of December. During the month of December, the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, and when he says brothers, he doesn't literally mean he's a brother, but he's a, he's a blood brother. He's Jewish like I am, is what he's saying, okay? One of my brothers came, came back from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So you have to understand the historical context of Nehemiah to understand what's happening here. God chooses to work through the Jewish people to be a light unto the world. And, and he says to them, listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make you into a nation. And, and what I'm going to do is if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to discipline you. It's a good parenting principle if you have kids. He tells them in advance what the discipline is going to be if they disobey. So you could say to your kids and what God says to his kids, listen, you disobey, this is your consequence. So when you end up over here, who, who's to blame? Not me, you, you chose that. That's what he does. And one of the consequences that he says to God's people, if you do certain things, if you rebel against me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow, while I don't like it, I'm going to allow other foreign countries to attack you, to destroy your city and take you into exile. You see, in those days when you won a war, you didn't just kill everyone off. Uh, not smart. What you do, you, you win. And once you know you've won, what you do is you stop killing people. And then you cherry pick the biggest, strongest, healthiest, youngest people you can find. And we're going to take them back to our country as slaves. It's free labor. That's what they did. They took thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews back to Babylon. Now, Nehemiah is a descendant of those people. They've been living in Babylon for a long time. He, he didn't, he wasn't even, doesn't even, had never been back to his homeland, but he's a Jew by blood, right? And, and he works at the palace. Why at the palace? Well, they've been in the country so long. They're not just working jobs in the field, menial slave jobs anymore. No, he's worked, they've worked them way, way up. He is now working in the palace as cupbearer to the king. Now, we don't have that job anymore, so let me explain what it is. Cupbearer is a combination of butler to the king. So he irons his, his shirt and he puts out his shoes or whatever. He's, he, he's, he's advisor to the king. He's right there in the court. He's a good friend to him. He'll give him advice. Most importantly, he's bodyguard to the king. See, in those days, if you didn't like the prime minister, didn't like the president, didn't like the king, you didn't wait four years for the new election. Oh, no, no, no. They didn't do that in those days. What you need to do is you need to knock him off. You need to kill him. And the best way to kill him was to poison his food. So now people in the court got smart. They got a cupbearer. So Nehemiah's job before the king eats, he tastes the wine. He tastes the food. If he doesn't die in 15 minutes, king can have a spaghetti. That's how it works, right? So it's a dangerous job. But once they know there's a cupbearer, it's not going to work. But they still have him. And he's in that role. He's in the palace. And one day, every day, there's different people coming in to see the king, delegations from different countries, trade agreements, all this stuff. And there's these group of Jews that come to the palace and he's a Jew. And he says, you know what? What's going back on in the homeland? What's what's going back on in in Jerusalem? The capital of where, where I'm supposed to be from. That's the story. And here's what the delegation say to Nehemiah. Verse three. They said to me, those who survived the exile, right? They weren't taken as slaves. 
They survive the exile. They're back in the province. They're in great trouble in great disgrace. Why? Well, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Whatever size problem you have this morning, there's four principles we're going to talk about this morning. If you're jotting down notes, here's principle number one. You need to admit your problem, analyze your problem, and or anticipate your problem. One of those three, maybe one or two of them. Let's talk about it. Number one is admit your problem. Um, One of the biggest problems some of us have is we're unwilling to admit that we actually have a problem. Does that make sense? I mean, don't we all have friends, co-workers, neighbors, people we know, and we look at them and they go, can't they see that their life has fallen apart? Can't they see they have this glaring issue or problem? And the, the problem is sometimes we're so close to it, we can't even identify it and see it. This is calling it like it is. This is saying, yeah, I've got an issue, right? I've got a problem. And in this case, the problem, if Jerusalem is the walls are broken, and we'll explain why that's a problem in a bit. The second thing is to analyze the problem. This is saying, okay, this is the problem, but why do I have this problem? And you kind of break down and you analyze, well, what are the contributing factors why I have this issue? Now, just a little suggestion, a little hint. It's very hard to self-diagnose one and two, to admit and to analyze. That's part of the reason you have the problem. It's part of the reason you have an issue. So just a suggestion. Sometimes this is where you need a good friend that will speak truth to you. You know, you have categories of friends. You got the friend that you love to hang out with and super fun and they make you laugh, but they don't really kind of get in your face. You know what I'm saying? And then you have the other kind of friend, right? That will lay it on the line and it will say, hey, girlfriend, let me talk to you about what I'm seeing. You, you need these kind of friends. They got your back. They love you but they're willing to speak truth to you to help you figure out the problem that you have and why you have the problem you have. The third is you have to anticipate. This is the best one. If you can do it, you, you, you get ahead of the problem before it happens. You anticipate it's what, it's what everyone is doing in North and South Carolina for the last week or two weeks, right? We know the storm is coming. We can't avoid the storm, but we're going to prepare to minimize loss property loss or we're going to board up the windows or whatever i know it's kind of flooding or we're going to just leave the area we're going to prepare for it back at um back in uh easter you guys remember we did that series on earthquakes and i came across this interesting story that that i thought was 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 fascinating on december the 26 2004 third largest ever recorded earthquake happened deep beneath the indian ocean it measured 9.1 on the richter scale It resulted, because it happened in the middle of an ocean, it resulted in tsunami waves over 100 feet high, traveling at 500 miles per hour. It eventually killed 227,000 people. Devastating earthquake. And it wasn't the, the shaking of the ground, it was the tsunami that killed so many people. Months after the devastation, one of the stories that came to the forefront was about a group of people that were living right in the path of the tsunami, but no one died. It's a group of people called the Moken people group. You have a picture up on the screen. They are known for, literally, they they are self-described sea gypsies. They don't have homes that they live in. They literally live in the handcrafted boats that you see on the screen. Uh, they're known for this fishing technique where they jump off the boat and, and they spear the fish. You can actually see a shadow of fish as they're doing that. They're known for teaching their kids how to swim before the kids learn how to walk. 
Okay, They're, they just live on the sea and they, they, they live right in the Thailand, Burma area and all these islands right in there. They just kind of go from island to island and they were right in the path of the tsunami, but nobody died. Do you know why? They anticipated the problem. While none of these Mokan people groups ha- have gone to college, they are experts when it comes to oceanography or knowing the sea. And hours before the tsunami hit where they were living, they started looking around and they saw what was happening in the sky with the birds. They saw what was happening with the waves. The wave got a lot smaller and the water receded. They, they saw what the dolphins and what the fish were doing. They were no longer swimming in the shallow area. In fact, all the fish, all the dolphins quickly headed out to the sea to protect themselves. And the Mokan people group knew there's a problem coming. And so immediately, hours before anyone else knew or the tsunami hit, they started heading to the islands and climbing the mountains as quick as they could. Nobody died. Interesting story. Question. Do you have the ability to do that in your life? Do you have the wisdom to anticipate tsunamis that are coming to you? You know, sometimes I I look at people, I'm sure you do too. Let me give you some suggestions. If, if, if you have kids and, and they, they're in the kind of developmental influence age and, and your kids, you have given them mo, no boundaries whatsoever, I could anticipate for you that you're going to have some kid issues down the road. If you're the kind of person that spends all the money you make, you don't have savings, you like to buy items on credit or debt and you don't pay off your visa at the end of the month, I can anticipate for you somewhere down the road, you're going to have financial problems. If you can't remember the last time you went on a date with your spouse, if you're not working at building your marriage relationship, conflict resolution, communication, intimacy, things like that, I can anticipate for you, you might possibly have a marriage tsunami coming your way down the road. If you love to eat you some fried food, you, you never exercise. You're a little bit overweight. You smoke. I love you, but I could anticipate for you, you're going to have a tsunami down the road. It's either going to be your back or it's going to be your heart or it's going to be your lungs. Something's going to happen. And here's all I want you to know. Have the wisdom to look around. Have the wisdom to analyze the different compartments or categories of your life and figure out what area might I have a tsunami? Might I have a disaster happen and get ahead of it? Anticipate it. Okay. The story goes on. Verse four, first part of verse four. Here's what we read. Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down, I wept, and for some days I mourned. Now, time out. Take a deep breath. Step back. He's crying over a broken wall. We'll get back to that. I guess what I want to ask you is, uh, when's the last time you had a good cry? You say, well, I'm not a crier. Okay, but you're not a robot. I know God created you with feelings, so let let me ask it a little bit different. What, uh, What breaks your heart? What bothers you? What keeps you up at night? Well, you might not cry, but what maybe maybe causes a little bit of moisture in your eyes? What is it? What's interesting about the first three verses of Nehemiah is there's no new information in the story. Here's what here's what I mean. Um, The walls and the destruction of Jerusalem happened 140 years ago. 
Everybody already knows that Jerusalem has been destroyed. 140 years. This is like me coming to you after service and saying this. Did you hear the horrible news? Did you guys all hear what happened? Oh my goodness gracious. President Abraham Lincoln, he's been shot. He's dead. Now, if I said that to you, what would you say? Uh, pastor, he needs to test his blood pressure or something. He's, something's going on with him. We all know that. What's the news? You knew about the broken wall. This is the news. It's not that Nehemiah is getting new information. It's that he's getting new perspective. He is finally looking at the problem from God's perspective, not man's perspective. And this is God's perspective. He had chosen the city of Jerusalem to be a light to the nations. And instead, it was an embarrassment to the nations. And it was breaking God's heart. And finally, finally, Nehemiah gets it. He gets it. Since he is consumed about his home, let's talk about our home for a moment. Instead of talking about our own problems, let, let's just take a, a couple steps back and talk about the Bay Area and, and what might or could be going on here that God might or could be concerned about. Just this past week, I came across a study done by a guy by the name of George Barna. You see his name in the top left-hand corner. He is the premier researcher in the country when it comes to spiritual faith church matters. And so he's been doing it now for 30 plus years. He'll do all this research. He'll gather all these statistics. He'll take it back. He'll analyze it. And then as any good researcher, it takes about six months to a year to produce the research and to share it. And, and, and so he's, he did this study on people going to church. That was the study. But he looked at two particular categories. Let me show you the first category. The first category is what he calls the unchurched. These are people that have never gone to church, never been interested in God, and don't plan on it. And he gave a list of the top 20 most unchurched cities in the country. Look at number 10, Albany. Number 9, Orlando. Number 8, Seattle. Number 7, Chico. Look at number 1. We used to be number 4. Last time this research was done, we are now the number one community in the entire United States of most unchurched people in the entire country. The second study he did, did was people that are de-churched. People that are de-churched used to go to church. They used to be interested in God, but not anymore. Look at number 10, Medford. Number nine, Vegas. Number eight, Reno. Number seven, Albany, look at number one. For the first time in the history of these re this research being done, first time one city has been at the top of both lists. So this is our summary slide. Let me show you. The Bay Area, our home, where we live, where we work, is number one community in the United States of unchurched and number one of dechurched. We are by far the most spiritually bankrupt community in the entire country. Now, here's what I want to ask you. What do you think God feels about what's on the screen? You see what I'm saying? Now, I get it. M many of us, we don't know any different. What's on the screen isn't your fault or my fault. I, I get that. But I'm saying put yourself in God's shoes. Put 
his glasses on when he looks at our community. And let me just be as clear. When he, he doesn't just think of the city of San Francisco or the city of Oakland or Richmond or Pinole, wherever it is we live. He thinks about people. The people you work with. The people you live with. The people you go to school with. The people that live across the street for you that are far from God. And if something doesn't change, there's dire results in eternity. It's one thing to get this intellectually, and it's another thing to feel the burden emotionally. It's so important that we understand we're not just plain church. There, there is significant and extreme consequences if we don't get this right. And it's what we do collectively as a church, and it's what happens when you walk out these doors in about 20 minutes. We can and should make an impact on this community if nothing else for what we see on the screen nehemiah sees it what's going on in jerusalem there's spiritual chaos almost the same as what's happening around us so we've talked about number one this idea of admitting our problem number two engaging emotion here's number three if you're putting down drawing down notes before you do anything else pray I want you, if you're writing, I want you to put it in all caps. I know there's a couple exclamation points in your study guide, but this is important, right? Because so many of us as believers, we believe in prayer. We talk about prayer. We go to Bible studies about prayer, right? But how many of us actually pray? Now now I am going to get in your face. You ready? We all walked in here with issues. We all walked in here with problems. Question, how many actual minutes did you spend Praying about that problem this week. We know prayer supposedly works. Why aren't we actually doing it? Now, I get it. I get it. Self-discipline or, or you know, time or whatever. But if you tell me you got an issue that you care about that's not being fixed, and the Bible repeatedly over and over and over again says, I'm just giving you a suggestion. One of the things you probably should do is pray. We got to get on our knees and actually do it. That's all we got to do. The rest of the chapter, all Nehemiah is doing is praying. He's not doing anything else. The entire rest of the chapter. I'm going to read it. I'm going to highlight a couple things for you on the screen, and then we'll break it down. Let me read it. Verse 4, all the way to verse 11. Nehemiah says, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer that I, your servant, is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you, We've not obeyed your commands, decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and you obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are from the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to your prayer for this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. 
Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So I want to show you this next slide. What we're going to do is we're going to break down part of the prayer. And as you're thinking about your issue, consider if you're adding these things to your prayer. Okay. So I told you, remember the month Kislev is December. That's chapter one, verse one, chapter two, verse one. Nehemiah says it was the month of Nisan. Now here's what's interesting. What is he doing between the month of Kislev, December and the month of Nisan, April? Take a wild guess. He's praying. He's, he's not putting together a, a list of things that he needs to buy. He's not, he's not interviewing subcontractors to build the wall. He, he's not. All he's doing is praying. So when I, when I have a, a, as your point, before you do anything else, pray, that's literally what Nehemiah did. He makes it a high priority in his life. The second thing that you say uh, that, that you see is that he fasted. And pray. Now, I'm just curious. I know some of us have fasted because, I don't know, we're trying to lose weight or we got surgery tomorrow and the doctor told us we can't eat for 24 hours. But I'm curious. Show of hands, just real quick. How many of you have fasted for spiritual reasons? Can I see your hands? Okay. So there's a lot of us who haven't raised our hands. So let, let's make sure we all understand what's going on here and why it's significant. So fasting is a spiritual discipline where you intentionally choose to skip a meal. Let's say I'm going to skip lunch or skip a whole day worth of meals, all of Tuesday, let's say, all the meals for the express purpose of taking the time you would spend praying. So let's say 15, 20 minutes to eat lunch in the middle of the day at work and your sandwich or whatever. Instead of taking those 20 minutes to, to eat your Subway sandwich, I'm going to take those 20 minutes and, and I'm going to leave the office. I'm not going to just, you know, surf the web. No, no, I'm going to tell people I'm going to lunch, but instead I'm going to go outside and I'm going to walk around the block a couple times and I'm going to pray. That's fasting. But there's one added component to it. Paul says in the book of Thessalonians, chapter 5, that you are to pray without ceasing. Well, how, how the heck am I supposed to do that? Because you see, I got a job and I have a family and I got all these. How the heck am I supposed to pray with, all the time praying? How am I supposed to do it? Co- combo it with this idea of fasting. So watch. What happens when you miss a meal? What happens right here in your stomach? It growls. What can you, if you've ever missed a full day of meals, it really growls. Here's the principle of fasting. Every time your stomach growls, it is a physical reminder to do what? That's praying without ceasing. So let's say you, let's say you desperately need a new job. Maybe, maybe it's just not a good environment or you're not making enough to support your family, right? And the Bible says you should be praying about it. How about try fasting? How about just lunch this week? I'm going to skip lunch this week. And every time your stomach prays, it's a rem- You don't stop working. You don't stop a conversation you're with someone. You don't stop. No, you continue on. But every time your stomach growls, God, give me a new job. Every time your stomach growls, God, I, I need something else because where I'm at's not working. Every time your stomach growls, God, give me opportunities. Help me fix my resume. Give me contacts. Every time you growl, you take your problem to the Lord. That's fasting. So I would encourage you, if you didn't raise your hand, if you've never done it and you've got an issue or problem, try it. Don't come back next week and go, nothing ever happened. Well, if you didn't do what you already know, it's kind of hard to come back to God. Try it. See what happens. Next thing is very interesting. 
He says, great are you, God. Awesome are you, God. Faithful are you, God. Question, does God need to be reminded of how awesome he is? Does God have low self-esteem? You know, we need to prop him up. God, you're the man. Does he need that? No. So then why is he doing this? You see, this isn't for God's benefit. It's for your benefit. So be reminded that we have an awesome God, that we have an all-powerful God, that we have a wise God, that we have a good God. And the minute you start focusing on who he is, your problem and your issue, the perspective changes. So could I just suggest to you, don't just barge into his office and start asking for stuff. Start by praising him for who he is. Start by saying, God, I appreciate that you are, and fill in the blank. Because there's a lot to be appreciative of. Okay? The next thing is that he begins to confess sin. Okay, let's get real. How many of us would be honest enough to admit that sometimes the mess we're in is our own fault? Come on now. The issue we have is because... I screwed up. Now, sometimes, sometimes it's a mistake. And mistakes aren't necessarily sin. But sometimes they are sin. And if you've sinned and you have an issue and a problem that's the result of your sin, guess what you should start by doing? You confess it. God, I'm sorry. I messed up. You may still have to deal with some of the consequence. Don't assume that just because you confess it, the consequence goes away. But he's going to help you process it. Now, the last time I taught the book of Nehemiah was not in the context of a Sunday morning. It was in the context of other pastors and teaching them leadership role uh, principles. Nehemiah is an incredible book to look at leadership principles. And I'm going to, every once in a while, I'll slip them in during this, these next couple months. First leadership principle comes right now. When you look at the phrase that Nehemiah prays, watch. I confess the sins we Jews have committed. I confess individually the sins we, the group, have committed. Now, this is important. Nehemiah wasn't even born when the Jews rebelled against God that caused God to allow them to be exiled. So why doesn't he pray? Instead of this prayer, why doesn't he pray something like this? Dear Heavenly Father... I know that my ancestors really screwed up. Doesn't pray that. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that we've disobeyed you. So here's the principle. Good leaders share the credit and they also share the blame. Nehemiah had done nothing wrong and yet he shares what the Jewish people had done. The applying principle is this. If you have a family issue, don't throw your spouse under the bus. Don't throw your kids under the bus. Don't throw your, 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 your parents under the bus or your in-laws. It's a we problem, not a them problem. We have an issue. Start by praising God. Then move on to confession. Third thing, this is interesting, he, it, it, again, he reminds God, God, do you remember when you said so on and so forth? He, he claims the promises of this book. You realize the more you know this book, the more dangerous and effective your prayers are? Because he says, I will give you 
everything according to my will. But if, if you know his will, it makes your powers more, your prayers more effective. That's just another motivation to get in this book. Eventually you get to the, look at the last step. He finally asks God what he really wants, what he really needs. And he, he just blunt. He boldly asks for success. And it's what you need to do. Lay it on the line. Ask big. God, heal my marriage. Straighten my finances. Heal my body. Give me a job. Give me a husband. Give me a child. Give me a cat-free neighborhood. I mean, ask whatever you want. Right? This is important. You need to understand that your issue is not your problem. Your issue is whose hands your problem is in. You take a basketball. Put it in my hands. It's worth 30 bucks. Take that same basketball, give it to Steph Curry. It's worth $20 million in three NBA championships. You see what I'm saying? You take a microphone like the one back there. You give it to me. I put it up to my mouth. It just augments my voice. You take that same microphone. You give it to Mariah Carey. It's five Grammys. All right. You give me a tennis racket. I'm worthless playing tennis. You give that same tennis racket to Serena Williams. It's 23 major championships. Last week, she didn't do too well. She got a little upset. But for the most part, she does really good when she plays tennis. Okay? You give me a couple nails. All that means is I'm trying to clumsily put some pictures up in my living room. You put some nails in the hands of Jesus. It means that salvation is available to all. You see, the issue isn't your problem. The issue is whose hands your problem is in. So take your problem and give it to God. And here's what I'm telling you. If you're not praying, you're trying to do it in your own strength. That's the motivation. Give it to him. God, I've got this issue. I've got this issue. Last principle. I'm going to slip into chapter, chapter 2 just a little bit because it's important that you know what's coming. In chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. Nehemiah says, I said to the king, my boss... If it pleases the king. Now, here's what you need to know about this king. He has already publicly proclaimed the walls of Jerusalem will never be rebuilt again. You see, they're his enemy. We don't want the enemy to get strong. The enemy gets strong by having defenses around their city. They will never be rebuilt again. He's already publicly stated this. And now Nehemiah comes to him. If it pleases the king. Would you let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried? Now, here's the, when you have an issue, when you have a problem, when you have something that's broken in your life, it starts by you being really committed to sacrifice. You see on the screen, it's not in your study guide, but I, you know, if you're really serious about fixing your problem, what I mean by that, and maybe it's just me, something, have you ever seen people, they talk about their problem but they, they don't seem like they actually want to fix their problem. It's like their problem is part of their persona. Their problem is their shtick. Their problem is what gives them an excuse to talk to other people and let other people feel bad for them. Guys, your problem, your issue, your past does not have to be your persona. You can leave it be. You can leave it behind you. If you're really serious about fixing your problem, it starts with sacrifice. Now, the sacrifice that Nehemiah makes is this. I'm giving up my cush plush job in the palace. It's air conditioned. 
All I got to do is answer a couple emails. I get to eat the best food prepared by the greatest chefs. I got nice white collar hands, never get dirty, never get sweaty. I'm giving all that up. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, mix cement and build a wall. That's called sacrifice. And it's what's required if you really want to fix whatever issue and problem you're working on. Anything great requires sacrifice. And then beyond that, it's not only the sacrifice, it's the hard work. And it's coming. It's getting in shape is hard work. Fixing your problem is hard work. Whatever it is, you think it's going to happen quick and easy. That's the mistake. It requires hard work. Story from years ago, back when choirs were super popular. There was this big college choir that went to this church. They were going to do a concert at the church. And and, and this concert, this choir, was going to be also broadcast on the local Christian radio station. So the announcer at the church comes and announces the choir. And the choir comes up and the congregation applauds. And the director stands, stands right there in the center facing the choir. And just as they're ready to start singing, the conductor realizes that one of his singers, his key singers, is not ready to sing. Something with the stand or the mic or whatever. And so the conductor waits. Well, the, the, the announcer who's now backstage behind the curtain is beside himself because what it means is that the radio station is broadcasting complete silence. And that's not what our radio stations want to do. So the poor announcer is backstage thinking to myself, what is going on? And he's getting frustrated and he's getting anxious. And so the announcer backstage thinking and speaking to the conductor, but forgetting that his mic was still on, said this. Get on with it, you old goat. But that was broadcast over the radio. A week later, a letter came into the radio station. And this man said, you know, I turned on the radio that morning, desperately wanting to have a word from the Lord. And I, I turned on the radio, and the first thing I heard was, get on with it, you old goat. And then he wrote, you know what? I think that's exactly what I needed to hear. Because there's some things in my life that I've been putting off that I haven't been doing. Guys, some of you didn't need a pastor this morning. You already know the solution to your problem. You just got to get on with it. So here's how we're going to end. I need you to turn to the person next to you. And I need you to say, get on with it, you old goat. Go ahead. Go ahead and do that. Turn to the person next to you and say that. Okay, now some of you are explaining what you want from them. Now let's bring it back. Some of you are getting a little carried away. Hey, guys, we all walked in here with one issue, with one problem, some of us small, some of us big. You've got to identify that problem and figure out what's, what's going on. You, you've got to make a commitment to engage emotionally because that, that fuels you to do something. Guys, you've got to set some time aside to actually pray. Stop talking to your friends about it and start talking to God about it, okay? And finally, get on with it, you old goats. Do something, okay? Let's close in prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'm going to give you 70 seconds to actually apply what we've learned this morning And we're going to talk to God. And here's what I want us to have you start by doing. I want to have you start by telling God, 
God, I appreciate you because. Pick a character quality you like and appreciate about him and praise him for that. Do it right now, you and God. Now what I need you to do is allow the Holy Spirit to bring something to your mind that you shouldn't have done, that you shouldn't have said, and I want you to confess that to God. Dear God, I'm sorry for, and you fill in the blank, you tell him. Now, finally, you're in a position to ask, what's your issue? What's your problem? And I want you to boldly tell them what you want. Tell them what you need. Do that right now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves. Thank you that in the midst of our issues and our problems and our broken walls, you give us suggestions, you give us advice, and most importantly, you're right by our side. Father, for a lot of my friends here that walked into your day with big problems and big issues, and they're not going to share after church because it's almost too hard to share, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would give them strength. I pray that you would help them persevere. Give them wisdom to know what to do and when to do it. Most importantly, I pray that in the midst of whatever issue they're going through, whatever problem they have, that it would draw them closer to you. Father, you are a good God and you are a faithful God. Father, we also want to wrap up and just pray about the research we looked at today. We're reminded that we live in a spiritually bankrupt community. Use us to be lights under this, this community taking one person at a time, the person we work next to, the person we live next to, the classmate we sit next to. Let us just focus on that one person helping them each take their step closer to you. Use us, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.